On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about allergies. You may believe you have allergies, and in fact, you may have allergies. But according to a new scientific study out of the States, 50% almost of people who believe that they have an allergy, largely self-diagnosed, are wrong. It's an interesting thing to talk about. Also, Malcolm Gladwell, a name you may know, a really interesting writer, has penned a piece for the New Yorker that you should probably read, but we're going to be chatting about what he says. And that basically is this. While we are legalizing marijuana, cannabis, in this country, there may not be a drug that has ever been released to the public and been told, go ahead and use it if you want, that less is known about. Are we walking down a dangerous path by telling people to go ahead and use this stuff while so much is unknown about it? All that coming up on the Scott Radley Show podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A lot of people listening right now, and many of you probably are, or at least think you're allergic to something. Hands up if you think you're allergic to something. Honk your horn if you're driving in the car or whatever else. Uh, Many of you will say yes because Stats Canada, statistics, not Stats Canada, pardon me, statistics tell us that many people would say that they are allergic to something. Dust, pollen, cats, shellfish, peanuts, eggs, I guess, milk, whatever. But I should probably rephrase the question because when I say, are you allergic to something, have you been diagnosed as being allergic to something or have you diagnosed yourself? Because there's two different things here. The new study out of the U.S. says roughly half of the people who say they have a food allergy don't really have a food allergy. 11% of people truly do, according to this study, truly do have food allergies. 19% of people, though, Say they do. How, how are we here and what does this mean? Dr. Susan Wasserman is a professor of medicine in the Clinical Immunology and Allergy Department at McMaster, and she is the Director of Adverse Reactions Clinic at the Firestone Institute of Respiratory Health. She joins us now. Dr. Wasserman, thanks for doing this today. Oh, sure. Uh, this, I read this story today, and it largely seems to be a story built around adult-onset allergies. We'll get to more details in a second, but mm-hmm. this seems to be adults who, uh, somewhere along the way, or grown-ups anyway, well, whether it's a- adults or teenagers, they eat something that they suddenly have a reaction to, and it doesn't go well, and either they then go to the doctor or they decide themselves that things were fine before, things are not the same now, I must be allergic to this. Is this... Is this a common thing? Is this something that you would hear from people that they're doing this self-diagnosing? It's extremely common, and I see that all the time, so you're absolutely right. The focus of this survey was adult food allergy, because I think many of us, or at least many people out there, think that food allergy is mainly a disease of children. Mm. So there were a couple of messages from this paper. You know, number one, uh, children do go up, grow up to be food allergic adults. The other is that food allergy can be diagnosed for the first time in adulthood. So age does not protect you against developing food allergy. And then thirdly, as you mentioned, and which is very important, a lot of people think that they have a food allergy based on symptoms, but they've never been properly diagnosed and they end up avoiding food either unnecessarily or carrying epinephrine or just taking all the same measures as a truly food allergic person would have to take. So, and that I think is an extremely important message. It's easy enough for an allergist to diagnose appropriately. So see one if you think that you do have a food allergy. 
if I grew up without allergies and then as an adult, I suddenly eat something or I take something in and it gives me some kind of reaction, I would then maybe come to the conclusion that I've got an allergy. How common are adult onset allergies? Or most of the time, am I going to know I'm allergic if I've had something as a kid? Well, you know, it, it's a complex question. Certainly children, if, uh, you know, if you develop very typical symptoms to those allergenic foods that we all hear about, like peanuts or tree nuts or milk, and those symptoms are fairly typical, you get hives or vomiting or even severe allergic reactions, something called anaphylaxis, where you have trouble breathing, then that's sort of a very obvious case of having a food allergy. And even if the symptoms are obvious and it's a food that's typically described, you still need to get to an allergist, in fact, very importantly, to be properly diagnosed and know how to manage. But a lot of times things are not that dramatic. You know, people may get some abdominal pain or they get cramps or they get bloating. They come to conclusions that this is food allergic and most of the time it's not and sometimes it may be. But, you know, the message is that you really do need a physician to help you sort that out. Is there a difference between a negative reaction and an allergic reaction? You mean a reaction that is not allergic in origin? Right, but I eat something and I have a symptom that may feel a little bit like it's not right, like I've eaten something and I'm not feeling good, I'm bloated, or I'm having diarrhea, or I'm vomiting, or I have hives. Does that necessarily always mean that I'm allergic? No, it doesn't. And I think that you mentioned an important point. You know, symptoms can overlap. And when you've been doing this for a long time, you sort of see that sometimes even not dramatically or, or, you know, extremely typical symptoms can still turn out to be a food allergy. You know, somebody can get very bad bloating or severe abdominal pain, uh, and yet it's truly allergic, uh, even though things like lactose intolerance, where you have a problem digesting milk, can give you similar symptoms. So, you know, to your point... Uh, if you see enough patients and things, Hmm. things do overlap. And this is why testing, apart from symptoms, ends up becoming very important to have a definitive diagnosis. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting about a study that has come out of the States that shows that roughly half of the adults who believe they have an allergy to some kind of food Don't really. It's largely, many of these people are self-diagnosed and the allergy based on some reaction they've had that they've determined, oh, I must be allergic to that, not allergic. Dr. Susan Wasserman is the director of the Adverse Reactions Clinic at the Firestone Institute of Respiratory Health here in Hamilton. You know, I, I should have asked you this right off the top, doctor, but can you describe what happens in your body when you have an allergy? What is an allergy? An allergy is a hypersensitivity And what it means is that you have a certain antibody uh, in your blood and on your cells, which is called IgE. And when that IgE antibody, which is responsible for allergy, binds to something that it's programmed to react to, you're going to get a type of reaction in the body where you get release of something called histamine, and histamine causes things like hives and itching and difficulty breathing. So something in your genetics has caused you to form this antibody, which is able to bind things to the environment and cause an allergic reaction. Can you ever grow out of it? 
Yes, you can, and that's sort of poorly understood as well. The sorts of allergies that are outgrown are things like milk and egg generally, though a small proportion don't outgrow it. Uh, Things such as wheat allergy may be outgrown, and even pollen allergy. A lot of the, you know, children and adolescents will develop hay fever, but once they get to the age of 40 or so, and that's a long time to wait, the symptoms of hay fever uh, do get outgrown for reasons that are not well understood. There is, though, a difference between, you mentioned intolerance before the break. There's a difference between an intolerance and an allergy. Yeah. And an intolerance is a different mechanism. It's not caused by this IgE antibody. It's a different immune mechanism in the body and sometimes non-immune. For instance, if you're lactose intolerant, you're missing a certain enzyme in the body to break down that sugar in milk. So the sugar called lactose accumulates and causes bloating and diarrhea. So there are many different mechanisms for why people have a bad reaction to a food. And food allergy is quite specific. It means that it is this antibody, whereas the other ones occur because of a different, uh, a different mechanism. When I grew up, I and I went to school, and I don't know, I'm not asking you your age. I, I'm certainly <laughs> never going to do that, but, but I don't know if you're of the age when you would have gone to school like I did, and I could take a peanut butter sandwich to my school because we didn't seem to have anybody around who was going to go into an anaphylactic shock if they came in contact with peanuts. This seems to be a much newer thing. Is there a much larger number of people with allergies now? And are the people with allergies much more reactive than the people who might have had allergies once upon a time? Look, I think that you raise a very good point. And when I went to school, peanut allergy was not a real phenomenon either. But clearly, since the Second World War, the prevalence of allergy has gone up. And it's not just to food. It's to things in the environment like pollens and molds. And we have a lot more hay fever, asthma, food allergy. And why is that happening is really something that's not well understood. But, you know, the most common explanation for why people are becoming more allergic is that we live a lot more cleanly. And when your body is not busy fighting infection and germs and this sort of thing, it becomes allergic. It becomes dysregulated. So it's quite a complicated sort of message as to why people have become more allergic over the years. But clearly it's happened. Uh, Maybe I'm being a cynic here, but it seems to me that in these days, there is almost a sense for some people that the idea of being allergic or specifically intolerant has almost become something that makes them more interesting. And and I mean, that sounds ridiculous to say, but how many people who say, oh, I'm gluten intolerant, who actually have any idea, for example, if they really are or not? We hear it all the time. And I can't believe that all the people who say they are truly are. No, it's true. I mean, there's no question that people will sort of, uh, you know, adopt a diagnosis with no good evidence, whether it's real or not real. I mean, you is hearing that don't even know. But it's, you know, there are a lot of people out there who in the absence of a valid diagnosis will say that there's something, but there's no real basis. So, you know, really the the message in this paper and really from me as a physician is that if you do develop symptoms, get yourself assessed. Mm. I mean, you know, we do very good testing in the allergy clinic, which consists of skin testing and blood work. And all of this can give you an answer quite easily uh, as to whether or not you have a true food allergy. And we certainly do plenty of feeding of people. Uh, just to prove whether or not they do have a problem with the food. 
just before I let you go, is it possible if I if I have the reaction that we talked about? So I've eaten something and I don't know whether I have an allergy, but I've had a reaction to it now. So I've decided that I'm allergic. Yeah. Can I psychologically cause myself in the future to have a bad reaction? Because I now believe that I'm going to react if I eat that again. Does that ever happen that I can, I can, my mind can make my body react poorly, which reinforces the belief that it's an allergy? Look, I think it's probably not an uncommon thing. It's, you know, uh, it's probably very well known uh, that if you think that you are going to react or experience a physical symptom, that you can start to feel those symptoms. So it's certainly possible. Uh, It's hard to prove. And, you know, even in the clinic, sometimes we have a difficult time testing, you know, Uh, knowing just from symptoms alone whether somebody is truly experiencing them or if, you know, it's a a difficult sort of phenomenon, but I think that the short answer to your question is yes. If somebody believes that they're going to become short of breath or have abdominal pain or whatever, it's certainly possible to experience those symptoms, and a lot of them are subjective. I mean, I, you know, I think me and other physicians will have no way of measuring some of the things that people are complaining about. So short answer, yes. Dr. Susan Wasserman uh, from the, the director of the Adverse Reactions Clinic at Firestone Institute of Respiratory Health. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many of you, I hope, have read Malcolm Gladwell at some point. If you know who Malcolm Gladwell is, your ears are perking up because you know he is one of the really interesting writers and really interesting thinkers of the modern time. If you haven't read Malcolm Gladwell, go out and get him. He's a Canadian guy, fascinating writer, and I, I describe him as a bit of a gentle contrarian. He's a guy who can take an idea and look at it from a different perspective and come up with some really interesting views on something that you may not have considered. Now, I bring him up because he wrote a piece in The New Yorker this week that I want to chat about with my next guest. The title on it, the headline on this is, Is Marijuana as Safe as We Think? Hmm. Well, it's the second part of the headline, the subhead, that really stands out. Permitting pot is one thing. Promoting it is another. Let me read the first couple paragraphs as background to where we're going with this. This is Malcolm Gladwell writing. A few years ago, the National Academy of Medicine convened a panel of 16 leading medical experts to analyze the scientific literature on cannabis. The report they prepared, which came out in January of 2017, runs to 468 pages. It contains no bombshells or surprises, which perhaps explains why it went largely unnoticed. It simply stated over and over again that a drug North Americans have become enthusiastic about remains a mystery. For example, smoking pot is widely supposed to diminish the nausea associated with chemotherapy, but the panel pointed out there are no good quality randomized trials investigating this option. We have evidence for marijuana as a treatment for pain, but very little is known about the efficacy, dose, routes of administration, or side effects of commonly used and commercially available cannabis products in the United States. The caveats continue. I'm still reading from Malcolm Gladwell. The caveats continue. Is it good for epilepsy? Insufficient evidence. Tourette syndrome? Limited evidence. ALS, Huntington, Parkinson's? Insufficient evidence. Irritable bowel syndrome? Insufficient evidence. Dementia and glaucoma? Probably not. Anxiety? Maybe. Depression? Probably not. We have an awful lot of people, I'm back to me now, not Malcolm Gladwell anymore, an awful lot of people saying an awful lot of things about this drug we don't seem to have much science to base it on. 
Dr. James McKillop is the director of the Peter Bora Center for Addictions Research. He is the co-director of the Michael G. DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research here in Hamilton. He joins us now. Dr. McKillop, thanks for doing this today. Great to be with you, Scott. I think it's fair to say, I don't think I'm overstepping anything here by saying that as a society, we seem to have come to some sort of conclusion that cannabis is relatively benign, certainly no more dangerous than alcohol. We've heard that from many, many people, probably less so. Uh, are, are we getting ahead of ourselves a little bit? Well, I think that a lot of the points raised by Malcolm Gladwell really hit the mark. And it, it may be the case that for some people, uh, they, they are overinterpreting uh, some of the big pu- public policy changes that have happened. So, for example, a lot of people may think that cannabis was made legal for recreational purposes because it is benign, although the reality is it was largely made legal because it was considered more harmful as an illegal drug than as a a regulated drug. So I think that it it is a a time that's uh, perfect for clarifying the the risks uh, that exist for cannabis. Is there another drug that you can think of that's on the market, and I'm not talking, well, probably not recreationally, even if it was over-the-counter, that has been introduced into the market, going by what Gladwell says with all these studies that he's citing that don't exist, is there another drug that's been introduced that we know less about? Well, certainly um, there is a class of drugs that is even more mysterious, the psychedelics, and you, you probably read a little bit about the, the new use of uh, hallucinogens for treating PTSD and other conditions, um, drugs like psilocybin or Iyerhuska, I think I'm mispronouncing that, but <laughs> I think that uh, the reality is uh, there are even less well-known areas, but, but it is also true that there are many more question marks about cannabis and its uh, risks than you would hope given how many people use cannabis. And, and that's the critical thing because for a lot of the drugs that we don't know that much about, the reality is uh, they're used by vanishingly small numbers of people at the population level, whereas cannabis is used literally by millions of Canadians recreationally and hundreds of thousands of Canadians for medical purposes. Yeah, I don't know of anyone today even, uh, certainly cannabis, yes, because it's now been legalized that in a public square in your office, people might say, I use it. I don't know anyone in my office who's going to walk in and say, oh, I was using hallucinogens last night. That's right. I just, That's it's right. not socially acceptable. And no. that to, to that point, I'm sure there are people listening to us right now who are thinking that we are being very prudish or very alarmist even by talking about this, because clearly it's legalized. We are going over rehash territory, right? That's what people are going to be saying. That's one of the criticisms that is easy to be uh, levied at people. So I, I occasionally feel like I uh, want to make sure that I'm, I'm not likely to be accused of reefer madness or, uh, you know... Uh, really um, inflaming the conversation by emphasizing risks associated with cannabis. But the reality is they are out there. And I think that uh, the, the, the uh, consumer should really be um, mindful of uh, the, the, the full spectrum of effects of cannabis harmful and potentially helpful in some cases. There is a line that was used, I can't remember who used it, it was a number of years ago, it may have been the former president of the United States who said when talking about climate change that the science is settled. And I get the sense that that's the feeling from a lot of people about cannabis. It's now legalized in Canada. It can't be harmful. The government would not legalize something that could possibly be harmful, therefore the science is settled. Right. Uh, And the reality there is that the, the government has legalized 
harmful substances for many years. Alcohol has plenty of harms associated with it. Tobacco has plenty of harms associated with it. I think that, unfortunately, uh, sometimes our intuitive responses to public policy are not actually um, a reflection of, of where the science is. And, you know, I think the uh, example of climate change is a great one when it comes to settled science. But for a lot of uh, areas, when it comes to addiction research and uh, psychoactive drug research, uh, we, we, what is settled is a fraction of what we know relative to the nuances that we're still trying to figure out. So, for example, we do know that cannabis affects motor control and coordination. And so as a result, it may be a risk factor for driving impairment or occupational impairment for people who are in safety-sensitive jobs like uh, crane operators or air traffic controllers. Now, what's much more tricky is what's exactly the right amount of cannabis to define as far as impairment goes? Is it a, a, a certain level in blood, like a blood alcohol level, or is it a certain duration since the person last used? So we, we have some areas of the science that are settled. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about a piece in The New Yorker this week. It's by Malcolm Gladwell, who many of you will know his writing. Many of you will appreciate his writing and appreciate the thinking that it causes you to do. We're ta- the, the headline on it, Is Marijuana as Safe as We Think? Permitting pot is one thing, promoting its use is another. It's an interesting, it's a provocative topic. We're talking with Dr. James McKillop, the co-director of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. Now, James, where this thing really, when I'm reading Gladwell's piece, there's a lot of stuff in there. Then you get into, when you're, you're sort of going through, then it gets into the really dicier. And I want to read something, and this sounds like it's very... I don't even know, big exclamation mark beside this. I don't know what to take from this one. This is a quote uh, from, again, from Malcolm Gladwell's piece. Many people with serious psychiatric illness smoke lots of pot. The marijuana lobby typically responds to this fact by saying pot smoking is a response to mental illness, not the cause of it. That people with psychiatric issues use marijuana to self-medicate. That's only partially true. In some cases, heavy cannabis use does seem to cause mental illness. As the National Academy panel declared in one of its few unequivocal conclusions, cannabis use is likely to increase the risk of developing schizophrenia and other psychoses. The higher the use, the greater the risk. I'm reading that and I'm thinking, okay, that clearly doesn't mean everybody is going to have mental illness, but that does sound very concerning that if you are someone who is prone to it, this could lead to much bigger problems than you're expecting. That's exactly right, Scott. The, the reality is it's not an alarmist thing to say to acknowledge that there is a very robust uh, link between cannabis use and uh, serious mental illness, especially psychotic disorders. You're also exactly right to say that this is a relationship that is um, that may be statistically significant, but for the vast majority of people won't apply. It applies at the population level, not at the person level. But it's part of the risk profile. And I think that uh, the, uh, the, the industry in general tends to be um, quite optimistic about the link between cannabis and other forms of mental illness. Um, what we increasingly see is that uh, over time, there are longitudinal associations or uh, basically what look like causal links between cannabis use and 
uh, worsening of anxiety and depression. And I think that, unfortunately, uh, there are more correlational studies than causational studies, but it does seem like that uh, trend is, is present in the literature. So uh, what we're not seeing is evidence that it is leading to natural recovery of anxiety or depression, although uh, I will acknowledge a lot of people who use medical cannabis say that they're using it for um, treating their psychiatric disorders. So it's a very murky territory. There is way too much in this piece for us to tackle in the time we have. I would encourage people to go look it up. It's Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, you can find it on The New Yorker. But before I let you go, we know there, there's been lots of talk. We had it on the news just at the top of this hour that the city of Hamilton, we know that they are discussing right now, there's a debate going on about whether they should be trying to get licenses to have storefronts to allow for people in this city to go and buy their marijuana. So basically so the city can get a chunk of the slice of revenue, the big slice of revenue apparently that everyone believes is going to be the case. Does it concern you at all that this may send a message that the state is endorsing this and saying it's okay? Or is that a logical thing for the city to do and they can control it then? Well, I I think that the... The reality is with uh, federal and, as a result, provincial legalization, I think that the widespread belief of the, the state approving recreational cannabis use is going to be present regardless of what Hamilton does. Um, however, I think that it is a reasonable issue for the municipality to think hard about. And uh, there may well be some benefits in terms of uh, tax revenues. Uh, and other uh, economic activity, there will almost certainly be some downsides, too. Um, what we know from alcohol research is that the, more, the higher the density of alcohol outlets in an area, uh, often the more alcohol problems are present in terms of, uh, for example, traffic accidents uh, and alcohol-related injuries. So there are two sides to this coin, and I think that uh, the, the, the city has to think hard about both sides and if there are going to be um, revenue benefits, uh, to my mind, it would make sense to make sure that they're going towards reducing some of the harms that could also come along. You, so you, I think that that's critical. You are going to keep studying this. I know that that's what you do. There's other people who are going to be doing this. What if we discover, though, down the road, answers that we don't like? Because it seems to me it's impossible now to put this genie back in the bottle. What if we discover all these missing pieces that Gladwell points at, that we start getting answers, and they're things we don't like or don't think are good for us? Good public policy is data-driven public policy. If the data uh, demonstrates that there are uh, substantial risks, for example, with having too many cannabis outlets, then uh, we should make adjustments. And I think that that's the reality around alcohol and tobacco. That's why, in some cases, we increase tobacco taxes to uh, create disincentives. I think that uh, it seems extremely unlikely to me that we would make cannabis illegal again. But I think that there are many, many levers and controls that can be implemented from a public policy standpoint. And I hope that we have lawmakers who really do monitor the situation and make choices based on what we learn as this great big uh, national natural experiment unfolds. Dr. James McKillop, co-director of the Michael DeGroote Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in the aforementioned Don Robertson. How's the jaw working? Is it still going? <laughs> 
Yeah. See, I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> Did you have a good Christmas? Good New Year's? Good everything? Everything, everything was wonderful. Lots of, uh, so the kids were all around and um, excellent. lots of FaceTime with uh, the granddaughter and yeah, it, it does change the older you get. Uh, it slows down a little bit and the, uh, I, I think you, you're, you know, you slow down your expectations. You don't travel as much and you certainly, um, I certainly don't partake as much because of the risks of it. I mean, you just, you know, I, I've been educated, you know, 40 years ago, uh, uh, there were no ride programs and people partied too much and seemingly there was less accidents. I don't know why. Well, less people on the roads. I guess so. Yeah. Well, was, I took a horse and buggy, so. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, uh, it, yeah, well, I'm glad you had a good New Year. Glad you had a good Christmas. It's, um, yeah, we were, we are perhaps the worst New Year's Eve people, the most boring New Year's Eve people. Put on the fat pants and sit on the couch and watch a movie or some That's stupid wrong. shows. Well, no, no, it's just, but it's, um, it's boring. We're not the ones. Yeah. I always watch the people who are in Times Square. Now this year it was raining, which looked completely miserable. Years before where it's been absolutely blisteringly cold is even worse. And I'm thinking to myself, you got to get there hours before, seven, eight, nine hours before to carve out a good spot. I would rather take a screwdriver and jam it up my nostril than to stand in Times Square for nine hours in the freezing cold. Well, we watched it as tradition now seems to be. I mean, I think it was four or five years ago we went to... um the Detroit and Leaf outdoor game mm-hmm. in Michigan. Yeah, so that was that kinda, was chilly. Yeah, that was chilly. We stayed for the whole thing too, and it, th- th- that was that was kind of cool. But we, now we, you know, Times Square is kind of a neat thing. And I remember Sue saying, "It's pouring rain. Look at all the people." But my deduction was that most of the people that were standing in the pouring rain would have been schmucks like you and I that went to Times Square. We'll never be back, and we went there for the New Year's Eve experience. They weren't New Yorkers there. No. They were people from all over the place and say, we come every year or we'll never come another time, so we're going to go and enjoy it no matter how bad it is. But I remember hearing one person one year saying they had to stand there in an adult diaper because they weren't couldn't leave their spot. And I'm thinking, it's cold, it's wet, and I'm going to wet myself to stand here and watch Mariah Carey lip sync her song? I, I can yeah. do a lot better things with my time than that. I'm sorry. I just... Well, uh, Okay. That's that's not my, you know, and... I'm getting to the point I'm not poo-pooing adult diapers anymore, so... <laughs> well... To, As I say, poo-poo. In a manner of speaking. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, and I, maybe it says something about how the age I'm getting to, but half of the people... This is really aging us. This is just admitting to people <laughs> that we're older, but half of the bands that are playing in this thing now, I'm like, I'm sorry, who? Was Rush not available? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. the Beatles were they? And Paul McCartney, give us somebody, give us somebody that's. Well, Burton Cummings played in Niagara Falls. Yeah, he did, he did. No, and that that's you know he's seventy one. There is something I, I I don't mind when they want to mix up the ages, right? Let's have something yeah, for for everybody. That's right, and I'll I'll happily listen to the stuff who's from some 19-year-old kid who I've never heard of before. You never know. You might like it. I'm, I'm fine with that yeah. as long as it's not 15 of those in a row. We play a card game, and I can't remember the name of it. It's like you, you, you play a card, and it's Strip really- Strip poker? No. God, no. Jeez, that'll clear the house out. Um, <laughs> they'd make sure I didn't win. Yeah, um, they'd really make sure you were in a chemically-induced coma. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what it was called. It was, it was rather fun. Um, 
and I'll, I'll I'll figure it out and let you know. Yep. It was good. It's a new game. The next time that person had double aces. Yeah. <laughs> be like, no, 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 Don, I got double twos. I'm lying. I got I got a two and a three. You win. Yeah, you Keep win. Keep your clothes on. Yeah. Don't even take a sock off. Uh, you know what also happens during the Christmas holidays, and I know you watched a bunch of it, I'm sure you did, was the World Junior Championship. We haven't had a chance to talk since. Uh, it is now over, but the, the blowback continues because after the captain, Comtois, missed the penalty shot in the quarterfinal game against Finland. He got, as we've heard, he got hammered on social media from people. It was, I guess it was pretty vicious at times. The trick with this tournament, that the, the, the tough part of this tournament, Don, is that these are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids, mostly 18 and 19. But the expectation, they want to play in this because it's a really big deal. They don't want to play in this because it's a novice house league tournament in St. Catharines. They want to play in this because this is the biggest tournament in the world, which means that when it goes really well, there is massive amounts of glory for those guys. Yep. But if it goes poorly, there is tons of criticism. And it's a, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to struggle. I don't want to be sending horrendous, angry notes to a 19-year-old kid because he misses a penalty shot. But it's a hard thing, a teeter-totter to balance on when you say, give these guys all the glory in the world when they do well. But if they fail, you got to be really, really nice to them and expect that the public is going to listen to that all the time. That's a tricky balancing act. Well, I mean, I had a guy the next day and say, why would Hunter pick him to take the penalty shot? I responded with the appropriate answer and said, because Hunter didn't want to advance. I mean, I guess that's the explanation people are looking for. I mean, he's a genius if he scores. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't, the coach has to wear that. Um, I think, you know, the, these kids go, they, they have tremendous pressure on them when it's in Canada. Absolutely. Anytime, and, anytime, but especially in Canada. Yes. And I don't think any 18 and 19-year-old is probably really equipped to handle that kind of pressure. And I think it's unfair. Our expectations are high. Theirs are high. Uh, the pressure comes along with it because of the event. But to chastise those kids, I think it's absolutely foolhardy, ridiculous. And the people that did should be ashamed of themselves. But do you understand in any case, and I'm not defending the people who ripped this guy on social media, but do you understand where that emotion comes from, that we have told people this tournament matters immensely. That's, that's, this is how this tournament has been built to be. This tournament matters. And so if you lose, it matters. It, it matters, but you don't, again, you don't have to chastise the athletes for heaven's sakes. Would I mean, it be different? I thought, I thought, I watched almost the whole game and I thought Finland was a better club. I thought our goaltending was outstanding he in was. that game. DiPietro was great. And they got... Uh, very lucky. I forgot I'm back on radio. It's not what I was going to say. <laughs> they got extremely lucky to tie it up. Lisa's finger is on the sensor button. Good. Be okay. Yeah, well then. Because I don't know how to work then it. Let, <laughs> let me let loose. But you know what I mean? I mean, they, they got lucky to, to score the goal they did, but they may well have been the better team. They went to the finals. They won the gold medal. Yep. yep. It's not like they got beat by Slovakia. Would you have been? Or Japan. There was a, uh, an assistant there. coach with um, the Vancouver Giants or some junior team out west that just got fired this week because he on Twitter was cr- critical of Hunter, the coach. And he basically was making comments criticizing Hunter. Now, to me, 
I'm with you. I would not send anything on Twitter or on social media ripping into the kids. But is Hunter fair game as an adult, as the coach? Is he a guy that if you are sure totally frustrated and you can't control yourself, is he the guy you're supposed to point the well, social could, media guns at? I could have seen social media going after Hunter for picking the kid. Not picking on the kid's failure to score. Here's a tricky one about that one. We heard after, and I don't know if this is, who knows if it's true. We heard after that this kid played the tournament with a separated shoulder. But if anybody knows Hunter does. That's true. Sure, it's not a surprise to him. No, no. If in fact it was true. But if he had a separated shoulder, is that the guy you're supposed to be sending out there for a penalty shot? If that's who you think can score the goal um, and make you advance, it absolutely is. I support the coach 100%. It's a, it's but such- he is more susceptible to criticism because it didn't work. We spent a full segment talking about a decision Gene Jones made in the summertime, and he had to wear it. And mm-hmm. as a coach, you got to wear those things. Right? You make the decision, you live by it. I don't, I don't like, I don't support people going on social media in general and just flaming people regardless of what it is. I just don't like the idea of whether it's this tournament or anything else. I don't love the idea of social media a lot of the time that it's become this toxic waste dump of every thought that crosses people's minds they feel they have to put out there into the world now. I don't, you know what, Don, I mean, you don't do it, but if you wake up tomorrow morning and you're steamed at somebody, I don't necessarily need to know that you're having a bad day and so-and-so is the cause of your grief. No. I, I, occasionally, if it's something, but... but I, I check Twitter out a bit, Scott. I'm, I'm on it. Um, I follow the people that I'm interested in. Um, the, the president tweets far more than I'll ever think of tweeting. My only tweet was, you know, get, cut these kids some slack. I've been critical of corporations before. If the business the job that they're doing is not good, I did one on, on holidays because the airline that I was flying in was not doing what I thought was an appropriate job and it was happening again and again and again. But to go after individuals, to me, I'm not a fan of that. I'm just not. Uh, Unless there's something that is so egregious and a politician is different to me than an individual. No, I mean, a politician is different from an individual. You have put yourself... And that's the tricky part about this though, because these kids, while... This tournament is a very big deal. They are still individual. I I understand. I really do understand why people get emotional and feel they need to have an outlet for something. Because we've built this tournament to be that. We want it to be an emotional thing. But I don't want you to take the target and put the target on the kid. It can ruin a guy's career. It could. Uh, Mark Visitine. Mm-hmm. That's how you pronounce Visitin, it. Visitine, yep. Uh, water, water down, down kid. Yep. Uh, who 2011 re- in Buffalo retired from pro hockey. I reached out to him when I heard he retired and he was not able to play, which is why he retired. I'd be absolutely astonished if that didn't have some type of an effect on what I understand is just an outstanding kid. So he did. He, it's uh, cruel talk- and unusual punishment. And you're right. You live by the sword. You die by the sword in that tournament. Uh, a, a friend of mine, a family friend of mine, who played for the Dundas Real McCoys, Todd Harvey still can dine out on captain, being the captain in Calgary of a World Junior Championship because he had an outstanding tournament, proved to the world he was a great leader and, and everything else. If they don't win a gold medal, the shine isn't, uh, the star isn't nearly as bright. When When Mark retired, I talked to him the day after or something like that, and he was very clear 
about the effect that tournament had on him. He got he got pounded on that, and it wasn't just social media. That was that was social media was involved at the time. He would go into other rinks, and the players on the other teams would be taunting him during the game, would be giving it to him during the game. I mean, it was it was very very difficult for that kid and. This is the, the... No one thinks, when you sign up to play for Team Canada, nobody believes they're not going to win. Every year that you get chosen for Team Canada, you go into that believing that this is going to be your moment of glory and you can be part of the biggest tournament for your age out there. And so when it happens that you lose, it is a shock, first of all, and then you get this dumped on top of you. But I don't know... But that's the expectation, right? I mean, when you... Yeah. And I don't when, know how you get around that. When you're good enough to make Team Canada, the world junior team, the expectation is to win. The expectation when you make the team, you know, if, if it's a, whatever the kid's name is, the Radley kid made the team, you know, he's not going home to his parents and saying, you know, I only made the team because it's going to be crappy this year. The expectation is to win gold every year. And even if we're not favored to win gold, the expectation again is to catch lightning in a bottle because we're Canadians and we should win. But when we've built the tournament to what it is, I get, we, we live in a society now, Don, where, as I say, you, not you, but the greater you, puts whatever they feel or think at the moment on social media. You almost now, if you're a player on that team, and it's not right, and I'm not defending it, but you almost have to go into this preparing, I am not going to even look at social media for the next year. I'm not. I'm just, because I know that I'm yeah. going to get hammered if something goes wrong. Heaven forbid I be the guy like Comtois, who has the moment on his hands, that you're the goalie. And go back and watch that 2011 game, the highlights. It was not Mark Visenton that lost that game. No, the, the entire team in front of him completely stopped skating and collapsed. He's the last guy back there, and he's all of a sudden the pigeon in the shooting gallery who's looked, getting picked apart. It looked like a Chinese fire drill in our, in our end zone for far too long. But he's the one who you have to just expe- accept that if I win, I'm getting all kinds of glory, and if I lose, people are idiots. Sadly, at least the ones who are going on social media and doing this stuff, and I'm going to have to live with that. And it's not right, and it's not good, but that's modern society. Can you imagine what that kicker for the Chicago Bears went through today on social media down in that area? Well, he, he shouldn't have been reading it. No way he should have been reading it. Yeah. You, 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 I, I would bet that Team Canada have a psychologist around and, yeah, but and, and do a right. little bit of preparing for them. But you can't prepare fully, I don't think. No, you can't. But you can at least make them understand that <laughs> to be pressure, right? Listen, son, if this doesn't go well, yeah, it that, will be your exactly fault. Yeah, that's not exactly the way to build them up. Here, here's the <laughs> one question I have, though, about this, Don. Is there, is there any blame... and? I mean, I give credit to the the TV carrier that's on this. TSN on TV has done a great job turning this tournament into must-see TV. An event. It's an event. It wasn't 25 years ago. It is now. But is there any blame there that those players get built up so much that the that that, that expectation gets created? Because at no point during that tournament, if you're ever watching those games, at no point do they go, yeah, you know what? Robertson's, he's okay. He's okay. Every player on that ice is spectacular. And everything they do is amazing. And the buildup is because of the hype around this. Is is any part of this to blame on either the TV carrier or on the media or on something else? Well, it's it's, it's what they've turned it into. And then the expectation happens 
that we should win because they do a feature and a highlight film of all the phenomenal things each one of those players have done. And then if you're playing in the U.S., they'll show you a highlight of two of their players. You're going like, holy crap, we got 23 superstars, and the U.S. have two. Who just We're learned to skate. Them. Yeah, who just learned That's to skate. Right. And they, they had an open tryout and found mm. some kid who could play. Let, I, let me tell you about the World Junior Tournament if we got a minute. Yeah, go. Uh, the Hamilton Steel Hawks and the Ontario Hockey Association picked it up for Hockey Canada uh, in 1986 when the thing was on... The last time it was in Canada was Montreal. It was a colossal failure. The OHA and the Hamilton Steel Hawks thought they could do a bang-up job. Cops Coliseum was new, brand new, like a newborn baby. And they held it here, and that was the kickoff for the event to be as spectacular as it was. Shane Corson, uh, some Hamilton Steel Hawks played on it. It was really the first time the building had been sold out. Eric Lindros was in that and one. I was going to say Lindros played in, in that event. It, when I say event, it was actually Hamilton, the Ontario Hockey Association, you know, Brent Lads, uh, the Hamilton Steelhawks, Peter Ham, who uh, who's operated the Brantford Blast for a number of years, did a stellar job in making it really important, and the thing took off. And that's when Canada started hosting. And now it's too big for us. The lion's share. And now <laughs> Apparently. We, we made a bid about uh, nine years ago. We didn't have a junior team. And... Um, uh, Larry Clark and I co-hosted the bid because we had some association with Hockey Canada. But when you need me to be uh, co-chair of a bid for junior hockey, we had a meeting and I said, I can't see how we can get it because we don't have a we don't have a junior team. I think that would help. And but we but you know the tourism people thought we've got the building. This is where it started. We put the bid in, but I think the point of the story is, I think it was a ten million dollar guarantee. It's a lot of money. And. Boy, it wasn't going to be any of mine, I'll tell you that. I and was, that adds to, we've got to go to break, but that adds to when you're talking about the pressure. If you're putting yeah. that much money down, you need, or it would be a great help for Canada to get to the semifinals or the final game. You really need them to get to the championship game. Now, I know that in Vancouver they had sold out most of their tickets, but nonetheless, you need Canada for ratings, for everything else, to get to that championship game, for the stuff you're going to sell. Um, you know what? It, it, most of the time they do, or at least often they do, but not this time. It was, um, and this kid, as I say, Comtois, the kid who's been wearing all this stuff, who knows? I mean, maybe down the road he goes to an NHL team and he turns out to be a pretty good player and this becomes a little footnote in his career, but if he never really cracks an NHL team, if he never becomes a significant NHL player, this becomes his his epitaph. This is his legacy. The um, um, Fair or not. Yeah. You're right. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, National Football College Championship is on tonight. I don't know if you're a college football guy. I'm moderately into college football. Alabama is playing Clemson, number one versus number two. Now, here's the reason I bring this up is because I am not necessarily a diehard college football fan. But Alabama, if they win today, they won in 2009 2011, 2012, 2015, 2017, you do the math if they win again today, how many championships that will be in very short order for this team. Is it good 
for sports? You and I have discussed this before, but is it good for sports when you have a team or a franchise that is so good, that is so much better than everyone else? Because clearly Alabama is miles ahead. Clemson could win tonight, but that doesn't take away the fact well, that Alabama is still there. How many, how, many champi- how many finals were they in that they didn't, I didn't, didn't win? Count. I didn't even count. But you, if Clemson wins today, every single person, maybe outside of Clemson, and even those in Clemson, are going to say this was an upset. Everybody expects Alabama to win tonight. It depends on your perspective. When the Dundas Real McCoys were like that in the senior league, I thought it was just phenomenal. I thought <laughs> that this is exactly the way this the world fun. should unravel. Yeah. And I think if, if you're a Raptors fan and they, you know, they get on a roll like the Yankees used to, um, I think it all depends on your perspective. But they'll I, run into Golden State in all likelihood. And you go, this stinks that Golden State has all these players sure and they win does. every year. But the, uh, but having ha- having a well-run team, I mean, it depends on the sport now because if the sport is freewheeling and you can buy whatever you want. I mean, I remember when the Yankees were, you know, they were beating everybody and, and were expected to win a World Series, not just get to it. I think the interest that it created was, I want to be the guys to beat the Yankees. And we want to get good enough to just give them a run for their money and beat them. And that's probably what Alabama have been doing the last decade is that's the benchmark for supremacy in college football. And to beat them is a much bigger feather in the cap than to beat the guy that dumped them off. Well, it's like McMaster when they beat Laval in 2011. Right, in the Vanier sure. Cup. Everybody uh, thought absolutely. Laval was going to win that game. It was a guaranteed win for Laval pretty much, and Mac didn't let well, that happen. Well, Laval's and, rookies are 30 years old. Well, I mean, it's an, un, it's an unfair balance. Yeah. Look at the, uh, now this is embarrassing, who's that young lady from Mississauga that went all the way to the finals in New Zealand in tennis yeah. and dumped off uh, Williams and a couple former number ones? Is it? Is it Bianca Andrischku. And who beat her? I don't even know who finally beat okay, her. Okay, so but whoever beat her, it wasn't my point is it wasn't nearly as big a deal as as if they'd beat one of the Williams sisters. No, that's in true. In my mind. That's true. So anybody that dumps uh Alabama off to beat them isn't as big a deal in the finals as beating Alabama because everybody wants to beat the best. Until you can't beat the best and the same team wins over and over again. And yeah. I see, I didn't, I never, it's funny because I, I suppose you can't make a blanket statement on this. I never had a problem with Tiger Woods winning all the time. Didn't bother me at all. In fact, I thought it was quite entertaining a lot of the time when he would win. But I didn't like it when the Yankees won all the time. I found it to be boring and I found it to be, um, and maybe the difference is because Tiger Woods is a guy who has every opportunity to craft his game the same way all the other guys do. You want to practice hard enough? You want to work on your game hard enough? Presumably, you could compete with Tiger Woods. It's not Tiger Woods isn't buying skill. He has skill, and he's honing the skill, and if you are a golfer, you may not have the same level of skill, but if you work hard enough, you can make yourself competitive. The Yankees can buy their way, and so maybe that's the reason why. I thought that it was unfair, it was unseemly that the Yankees well, could buy their talent. I think you put it in perspective, and I, I, I said to you before, it depends on where you sit, whether you like it or not, uh, and you can justify almost anything in life. If you justify the fact that Tagger Woods is there because he has pure natural talent that he works harder at than anybody else, and the guys that some would argue some guys had just as much talent, didn't work as hard, so Tiger deserves to win, and the Yankees, all they did is blow their brains out, and it was always great to see a team that's spending back then seventy-five million get beat by a team that's spending twenty-two million. 
But it depends on your perspective and who you're cheering for. I, I believe that. Well, once upon a time, probably up until the 87 Canada Cup is how the story goes anyway. You could, Mario Lemieux was coming into the NHL. He was a young guy. And Gretzky was already in the NHL. And the storyline always was that it was at the 87 Canada Cup that Lemieux played on a line with Wayne Gretzky and saw how hard he practiced and how hard he worked, and that changed him. But up until that point, Lemieux was a was seen as a lazier player. All the talent to equal Gretzky, plus a better body, bigger, stronger guy, but didn't work as hard as Gretzky. And then after that tournament, did. So I look at that and I go, okay, you know what? If The fact that Gretzky won all those heart trophies and everything else, yes, he had unbelievable talent, otherworldly talent, but he also worked harder than anybody else. And that I can live with. And in an individual sport, that kind of thing, I can say, you want to dominate your sport, knock yourself out. But the Yankees or, and this is why Alabama for me becomes tricky. You can't buy talent. You can't play, pay players. Sure you can. You well, th- really, you think Alabama aren't enticing guys? And I think the, uh, they don't, probably ways. don't have to now because they're going to say, do you want to win? You want to play in a winning program because we put more guys in the NFL than anybody That's else? That's one way. That's one way. And the facilities that you can offer and the food plans and the residences and the training and all the other stuff that you can offer that is, look, if you go to tour Alabama's facilities, go online, by the way, and you can find a YouTube video of Alabama's football facilities for the players. I would, I would love to live in that place. That, I mean, that is, that is one of the most luxurious setups you can have. So if I'm choosing between Alabama and Bucky State, and they have a you know a, a small field house with no, uh, not much choice where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Alabama. You should leave Bucky State out of this, but it's it's not even. I mean, those things play a part in it when you talk about paying guys, and you can't pay guys to play college football. But I'll tell you Most when places when you're what's that? <laughs> Most places, yeah. So, but if you're visiting the parents from Lansing, Michigan. And this kid's going to be all world and play in the NFL, and you're there talking to him. And the coach looks at the parents and say, and of course we'll fly you in for every game and put you in a four-star hotel with your extended family, and we'd like you to be our guest. We can't pay your son to play. Uh, Bucky State said they'd give you two tickets for each game, right? Well, good for them. You know, it's only a 12-hour drive. We're going to fly you in for every home and away game and give you good tickets, and there's a lot of enhancements that can happen. And by the way, you've got four you've got four siblings coming along, and if they're not good enough to get scholarships, we can take care of their schooling for you. I mean, there's got to be a million ways to do I'm it. I'm sure there is. I, uh, That's what I'd be doing. To me, it's not I'm not a, the smartest guy in the world. Not, uh, t- to me, it's not a, a cut-and-dry thing, to be honest. I, I, I would like it to be. I wish I could say that I just hate all dynasties and wish they would all lose or I love all dynasties and wish they would all win. I don't, I, there, there are some, and I, perhaps it, it speaks to a hypocrisy. I don't know, but there are some that I'm quite okay with certain individuals or teams winning all the time and others that I just can't stand. And I don't know, like I say, I don't know if it's the way they've delivered it, the way they've built it, the way they've, the, as I say, the Yankees to me come across the Red Sox, similar thing. It's, you've bought your talent. There's, it doesn't seem, it seems as though there's nothing pure or nothing, I don't know, good, that's not the right word, (laughs) honest, natural about how you've done it. You've just gone out and bought the best players because you have the biggest money. Whereas 
You know, I, back in the 80s, I was a huge basketball fan back in the 80s, and I loved the L.A. Lakers. Their team had superstar after superstar after superstar. So did the Boston Celtics. I hated the Celtics at the time. <laughs> but all the guys that ended up on the L.A. Lakers were got through trades. Free agency wasn't really that much of a thing back then. That was a team that was built. And the GM built that team, Jerry West, Jerry built West, that yeah. team legitimately. And so you could cheer for it and go, you know what? They just, from the court to the front office, did that better than the other teams except for Boston. Well, the, what, but the one thing you're missing, though, is when you get all those superstars and you build it that way, whether you trade for a kid that's been in the league four years because you know he's going to be a superstar, you got to pay them all to keep them. And it does come down to money. But it wasn't like the leaps are, then. The leaps now. It's all the talk about the leaps. I don't know why Leaf fans are like that, but they're now more worried about what's going to happen next year and the year after. Can they keep these guys? But yep. in L.A., they they got superstars and they could keep them. But the money was an awful lot less then, so it was much more realistic that you could do that. And but if you put it, but if you put it on a scale, I'll guarantee you they were the, by far the highest paid team in the league because they had the best players in the yep. league. Yep. No. And you got to keep them. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Seldom am. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.